0: Webster's Dictionary defines the word hero as a man or woman of distinguished courage or ability, admired for his or her brave deeds and notable qualities. Have you ever had a hero in your life? I think that means different things to different people depending on how old you are. If you're young, well for me I remember when I was young, it was He-Man. Masters of the universe, an ordinary man who loved his cat, but when the need arose, supernatural powers would be manifested, and Battle Cat would come, and and he would save the day, and He-Man was my hero. Then a little bit later on, it was Superman, a man with supernatural powers, but they were hidden behind nerdy glasses in the person of Clark Kent. And selflessly serving humanity one need at a time. And, you know, able to turn back time and do pretty much anything. He was my hero. A little bit later it was Batman. He didn't have any supernatural powers. He just had a selflessly dedicated job description and a great set of gadgets. You know. But you realize as you come to a certain age that none of those things are real. That superheroes don't exist. So the definition changes a little bit and when you come into your middle years a hero takes on a different meaning. It, a hero for us is someone that we really like or admire that has traits or abilities that we covet and wish that we ourselves had. Or maybe someone who's done something really nice for us or helped us in some way and we call them our hero. They, they, they've saved us in, in some metaphoric sense. Or maybe someone who inspires us to be better. Better at what we do, or better people, ourselves, who we are, and the way we see life. And, and so we have people, heroes, you know. But inevitably what happens is that we begin to see through the heroism of even those people, and we see that they have flaws and weaknesses just like we are. Sometimes those admirable traits, we see through it, and we see that behind it there's something that's pretty dark that goes along with it that we wouldn't want. Or those things that they've done for us had ulterior motives, and the hero image that we put on them is somewhat shattered. And so by the time you're old, the only hero you have left is the one that you get at Joe's Deli on Saturdays sometimes, you know. (laughs) And the question is, where have all the heroes gone? We're studying the book of Judges. And as you know by now, the Judges were not men wearing black robes, carrying gavels and sitting behind impressive benches. But rather, the word judges in the Hebrew, it's shepatim, and it means deliverer or savior, or we could say, heroes. And that's exactly what they were. There was 12 men and one women, woman sorry, that God raised up during this period of Israel's history to deliver them in their time of need. And thus far in our study, chapters 1 and 2, what we've seen is the reason why they have that need. You see, they had given themselves to compromise. They were turning from the ways of the Lord. They were intermingling with the people of the land and worshipping their gods, giving themselves to the ways of those people. And the corruption that God warned them would come with that, came with that. And they find themselves in an endless sin cycle throughout these years of their history. 300 years, roughly. We've seen that cycle defined for us. They would walk with God for a while. But then they would compromise and succumb to sin. After succumbing to sin, they would become enslaved by it and ultimately sold into the hand of one of their enemies. They would become slaves. But then they would get sick of that after a number of years and they would repent and they'd cry out to the Lord and he would raise up for them a hero, a judge, a deliverer, someone who would rescue them from the bondage of their enemies and they would again walk with God for a while during the lifespan of that judge. But then they would succumb to sin again. And we've seen that cycle described for us in the introductory chapters of this book. And now, Tonight, we begin to look at the judges themselves, but the question that we must ask ourselves as we approach this study is, who are the heroes of today, and what is the purpose of this book? Because it's always more than just history. It isn't that God just wants to highlight the lives of these people, trophies in His showcase of history that we would look at them and see what they did, but rather there's something in it for us. There's something that God wants to do for us. So who are the heroes of today, and why is this book here in the Bible for us? Why are we studying it? And the answer to all of those questions is one word. You. You see, the judges, the heroes of this book of Judges, weren't extraordinary people. They didn't have any supernatural powers. They didn't sport a cape or hide hidden things behind nerdy glasses like Clark Kent, you know, or have anything else supernatural about them. They were ordinary people, and they had weaknesses and vulnerabilities just like you and me. What they did is that they employed the gadgets of God, if you would. The things that God has laid out for them, and the power of His Spirit and the life that He gives to first deliver themselves but then become an agent of deliverance for the people of their nation, the people around them. So the answer to the question of why is this book here and what does God want to say to us? Who are the heroes of today? Hopefully the answer is you and me. That as we see how God raised these men up and what he did, that we would see ourselves in the story and say, God, what do you want to do with my life? Now in each one of these instances, these judges, these heroes that we'll see, we'll see a different aspect Of something that they were able to capitalize on that God makes available to all his people in every generation that made all the difference in them and then for the people in their lives. We are called to be the modern day heroes in our world. And the challenge is that we might ourselves rise above and then take others with us as we go. And so the chapter begins, chapter 3 as we begin this. With a partial explanation of why God allows problems to persist in our world and in our lives. Notice with me in verse 1. He says, Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal-Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Now we've already seen that it wasn't God's initial intent to leave any of the people there in the land. But the people didn't do their job. They didn't drive them out as they had been instructed. And so now God resigns to leave them there among them. They're co-dwelling with their enemies in the promised land that God gave to them. And you say, well, wait a minute, that's not good. No, it's not good because it will be a thorn in their side and a scourge to them like God said. But the Bible also says that God works all things together for good for his people, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So here in these opening verses, God tells us why or what he's going to do through the presence of these people in the midst of his land, and he gives three things that he's going to do with them. First of all, he's going to use the enemies of Israel to test his people to see whether or not they will choose him. The Bible says that God made us free moral agents when god created man he gave man and us successively through man the ability to choose freely what we want to do with our affections and with our love and the whole reason that god made man was so that he might have a free moral agent that would willingly be able to choose him and love him that's what god wanted he didn't make us to be robots he could have He could have just put a little light switch inside of us that, you know, he would flip at some point and we would just become God lovers. We would say, I love you, God. I will worship you. I want to follow you. But he didn't make us that way. He gave us a choice. And that's the primary prerequisite if love is going to be real, is that it has to be a choice. If I propose to my wife with a baseball bat... There will always be a question mark in my mind as to whether or not she really loves me or whether or not she is afraid of me. And God's not looking for people to be in relationship with him because they're afraid of him. He wants us to respond to his love for us by loving him in return. And so God gives to every man, woman, and child a choice as to whether or not they're going to follow him. He doesn't force any of us. And so God says the first good thing that will come from the enemies, the struggles, the difficulties, the scourges in the lives of his people is that it will be an opportunity for them to make a choice. Do I want to go away from the Lord and serve the gods of the land? Or do I want to turn from the gods of the land and serve and live for and love the Lord? What do I want to do? And God says, I'm going to test them by them. So testing is number one. Number two is that he's going to teach them. He says that the second reason for it is because there are some people that are born in the land that were never taught how to fight. And the presence of the enemies of God among them will be for them a constant source of education. You ever wonder why, when you got saved, when you chose the Lord, why your troubles and your trials didn't just disappear and go away? Lord, I love you. Lord, I'm following you now. Why is this so hard? Why do I still have these temptations and these desires for sinful things? Why is there this constant presence of wickedness around me that's pulling me in, that's drawing me towards it? Why? And the Lord says, His answer is, to teach you. He uses our struggles and our temptations to teach us how to fight. What does He teach us? He teaches us the difference between good and evil and the reason why good is good and evil is evil. He uses our temptations and struggles to do that. He teaches us the nature of our fallen flesh. And of our own weaknesses. The difference between the spirit that's willing and the flesh that's weak. Both things living inside of us. He teaches us to recognize temptation when it comes. At first, we don't even see it coming. It hits us, it blindsides us. But after a while, after a few knockdowns, we become familiar. Just like you would in a fight, you know. If you get punched in the face a few times, after a while you learn how to duck. So our struggles teach us to recognize temptation. And then, what we have to do to stay free. I mean, if I don't want to be ensnared by the things that I'm drawn to in my flesh, then there's certain strategies that I need to employ. But I would never learn those strategies if I didn't fall sometimes and get tripped up by the things I struggle with. So we learn from it. And then finally, we learn to hate sin and its deceitfulness. I don't know if you've come to that point yet in your life where you've struggled with a sin or some sins so much to the point where you literally come to hate them. You're in a good place if that's happened to you. And sometimes the only way it can happen to you is through that struggle and the constant defeat. But then you're assured the victory because the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And it's the beginning of wisdom. So God uses our enemies to teach us how to fight, how to engage in spiritual warfare and keep ourselves in a place of freedom because God wants us to be free. And so he uses their enemies to test them. He uses them to teach them. But then he says again, now in verse 3 there and 4, he says to prove them, to prove whether or not they will keep his commandments or not. You say, wait a minute, isn't that a little bit redundant? Didn't he already say that he... Would test them? What's the difference between the testing and the proving? Here's the difference. I've asked you to turn to James chapter 1. Let me show you a verse here. He says up in verse 4 of chapter 1, I'm sorry, not verse 4, verse 2, he says a verse that causes us to furrow our eyebrow a little bit. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, let me ask you a question. When's the last time you rejoiced when you fell into a trial or a temptation? Did you say, oh, yeah, this is great, I'm being tempted. A trial, difficulty, yes. Wait, this is not right. What do you mean rejoice when you're being tempted? Why and how can I rejoice in a time of tribulation? Well, here's the answer. Look down just a few verses down to verse 12, and he gives the answer. Here's why it's a reason to rejoice. He says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. That means to overcome. That you've been tempted, you've been tried, and you were victorious. You didn't succumb to the sin, you didn't compromise, you didn't turn away, you didn't get discouraged, but you held fast to the Lord, and you did well in your in your fight. He says, blessed is the man who endures, why? For when he has been approved... And if you're reading out of a King James or a New King James and you see that word there, circle it in your margin and just divide it. Take the AP and put a parenthesis after it and you'll see the word proved in there. That once you've been proved, meaning that God has saved you, you've chosen him, and now he's taught you, your struggles have buffeted you and trained you and you've learned your boundaries and you're walking the narrow path, you say, Those trials are still coming. Those temptations still come. That's right, because now he's proving you. He's testing you with fire to see the quality of your love and your devotion to him. And here's why he does that. Because when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Meaning, you've loved him, so you've chosen him. You've been tested and tried by him. You've been victorious, and now you've been approved, and God grants to you. It's like he takes your file in heaven. You're saved. You're going to heaven. He did that through the blood of Christ. But he takes the big stamp, and he goes, and he stamps approved. You've been tried, tested. You're faithful. You're devoted to him. He says approved, and then he issues to you what James calls here the crown of life. We see that given to God's people throughout the pages of Scripture. I think of Jacob. He was saved at a much earlier age than when he more or less received his crown. Twenty years after leaving his father's house, after all of his children had been born, he had been blessed and prospered, and now he's being brought back into the land. It says the night before he met with Esau, a man wrestled with him. And the Lord met Jacob and began to wrestle with him there at Peniel. And he wrestled with him all night long. And when the Lord saw that he couldn't prevail, that Jacob wouldn't give up, that he wouldn't surrender, it says that he touched the hollow, the the socket of his thigh and the muscle shrank. And and then the Lord said, let me go, it's daylight, it's time for me to go. And Jacob held on and he said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And it says that the Lord said, you've prevailed. You fought with God and you have prevailed. And and he changed his name. He said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. And then he calls him, he uses this word, he says, a prince. He says, for you have prevailed with God and you have become a prince with God and with men. And something happened that day. He was crowned. There was a crown that was given to him. We see it demonstrated in the life of Joseph. Saved at a young age. Taken to Egypt, tested there, tried, tempted at the hands of Potiphar's wife through all the things that he went through. And there came a point where God stamped his paper and said, Approved. And he stood before the Pharaoh, and the ring of Pharaoh was placed upon his finger, and a gold chain was placed around his neck, and the robe was placed upon him, and he rode in the first chariot, and he became the prime minister and a picture of the Savior of the world. We see it in the life of Joseph, we see it in Daniel, we see it in David, we see it in Paul, we see it throughout the pages of Scripture that there is something there that God looks at a person who's going to follow Him and He says, blessed are you when you endure temptation. Happy are you when you fall into trials, because when you've been proved, you will receive the crown of life. And I believe that the things that God wants to do with our lives, the things that he's willing to do with our lives they're beyond anything we could ask or think in fact i know that because the bible says that but he's not gonna do it if we're not devoted to him there's going to be a proving and a testing to see if god if we do we love him will we follow him and so god says for these reasons i'm leaving your enemies behind to test you give you an opportunity to choose to teach you how to fight to know your boundaries and then to prove whether or not you're going to love me and follow me and walk in my ways that you might receive the crown of life. And so he gives them these three reasons. And now he gives them the conditions that pre- pre- preceded the first of the judges. Look with me at verse five, back in Judges. He says Then the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and they gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Escherahs. Notice the progression that it it, it tells us that they took here in these verses. It says, first of all, they dwelt among the Canaanites. Then in verse 6, they took their daughters. Then they served their gods. Then they forgot the Lord. They dwelt among, they took, they served, they forgot. And that's always the progression that sin takes when we compromise the ways of the Lord. First, we dwell among things that we shouldn't be dwelling among. We get too close to the boundaries we know we shouldn't be close to. And inevitably, then, we take the thing that we're not supposed to take. It ultimately leads us to serving something, becoming a slave to something we don't want to be a slave to, and ultimately results in forgetting the Lord. I'm amazed at our ability to forget the Lord you would think how could you forget God the things that he's done the testimonies of his past dealings with his people all throughout the history of earth the things that he's done in our lives in your life in my life and how quickly we can forget those things when we become slaves to something else I'm always amazed at that but it happens and so here's the result of it in verse eight, and here's the first sin cycle deliverer here, verse eight. It says, "Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Affordable Care Act." No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. It doesn't say that. It, it, it was just a joke. It was, I was just kidding, you know. No, it says. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to get in trouble for that. Don't don't write letters, you know. (laughs) It says that he sold them. Now think about that. Mark it in your Bible. Circle those words. The Lord sold his people. There was a deal, there was an instance where the enemy of God was in the conference room with God and God said, I'm giving him into your hand. Ouch. Ouch. It says that the Lord sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cushan-Rishathaim 8 years. And when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel, who delivered them, Athneal, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, or Caleb it was Caleb's nephew literally. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest for forty years, then Ahniel, the son of Kenez, died. Now the first enemy that's raised up against them in this king by the name of Cushan Rishathaim. And four times his name is repeated in these few verses. His name means double wickedness. Now, in every one of these instances, you're going to see three ingredients. You're going to see, first of all, a problem. In this case, the problem is, kushan rishataim, double wickedness. Then you're going to see, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There it is again, uh, the brain shutting down. Uh, The action, and then you're going to see a solution. So a problem, an action, and a solution. The problem here, it's kushan rishatayim, double wickedness. And that's what sin always results in. Sin is such a deceptive thing. The Bible warns us about the deceitfulness of sin. Because it seems harmless. It seems like it's not a big deal, like we can control it, but the next thing you know, it spirals, it whirlpools, it descends into something that we never expected or thought thought it would become, and we become slaves to it. The story is told, I, I, I printed this up, it says, uh, it says that raccoons go through a glandular change at about 24 months, and after that they often attack their owners. Since a 30-pound raccoon can be equal to a 100-pound dog in a fight, I felt compelled to mention the change coming to a pet raccoon owned by a, friend, a, a young friend of mine, Julie. She listened politely as I explained the coming danger. I'll never forget her answer. It'll be different for me. And she smiled as she added, Bandit wouldn't hurt me. He just wouldn't. Three months later, Judy, Julie underwent plastic surgery for facial lacerations sustained when her adult raccoon attacked her for no apparent reason. Bandit was released into the wild. Sin too often comes dressed in an adorable guise. And as we play with it, how easy it is to say, it'll be different for me. But the results are always predictable. And how many of us can relate to that in our own experience? You know, we, we fear something. We know the dangers. We see. We're warned. We watch what it does in someone else's life. But then for some reason, in a moment of temp, you know, weakness or peer pressure, we succumb in some way. And what happens is, we get through it and, it, and though our conscience bothers us, there really isn't a great consequence. And so we think, well, man, what was all the hype about? I was so worried and concerned about doing that, but it didn't really affect anything. Everything's okay. It didn't, my marriage didn't end, or I didn't lose my job, and no one found out. I didn't get caught. It's really not that big of a deal. But then what happens is, that thing that we gave into, ultimately comes back around again. And the second time, it's a lot harder to resist. A resistance is broken. And, and, and though, it, okay, well, it didn't hurt last time, it didn't seem like a big deal, and so we give ourselves to it again. And the next thing you know, you become more consumed by it, and it starts to grab a hold of your life. And the next thing you know, you're enslaved to it, and you can't get free. And what started as just a simple little thing, no big deal, now it's become double wickedness, because it's descended into a spiral of iniquity in a lot of other things. So what's the action here? It says that they cried out to the Lord. Now, it took some time for them to do this. I'm amazed at their stubbornness and their ability to wait 8 years, sometimes 12 years, sometimes 16 years, sometimes 18 or 20 years for them to to say, hey, we don't want to be in this situation anymore. But they finally come to a point where it says that they cried out to the Lord. And the language indicates that there was a degree of desperation in the prayer that was offered. That it wasn't just a casual request quest thrown up to heaven asking God, please would you set us free from these issues, these difficulties. But there's a desperation now in saying, God, whatever it takes, whatever we have to do, we've got to be free. Set us free. And oftentimes I believe that that's the thing that God is waiting for in us as he looks at our lives before he brings deliverance to us personally in our situation. I believe that God answers prayer in proportion to how prayer is offered. We see that in the book of Revelation in chapter 8. It says that there was a bowl full of incense. And it says that that incense was the prayers of the saints. And it tells us there in that same passage that God took that bowl and that he filled that same bowl with fire from the altar and that he cast that then into the earth. And the result was fire and uh, some lightning and the an earthquake and all the rest. But, but the, the interesting thing to me is that the same bowl in which the incense or the prayer was offered was then used or employed to give the answer. And I think God answers us the same way that we pray. We pray, we say, oh God, I just love you, Lord, and I thank you so much for how you're working in my life, and, and there's just a couple things I want to ask you tonight before i not offering. Just pray, Lord, you know the struggles. I just want to be delivered. I want to be close to you. I want to know you more. Lord, I pray for, you know, Joe and Bill and, you know, and Lord, I just lift up these, <sighs> got to get up early. Um, and so, Lord, I just pray you do those things. Amen. Amen. And and I think God hears that and he goes, <sighs> <sighs> he goes, okay, all right. So you want me to, uh, you want me to deliver you exactly from what again? What was that? Uh, uh, tomorrow's comes early. Uh, hmm. And, The Bible says that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What I can tell you from my own experience and my own relationship with the Lord is that every time I have prayed desperate prayers to a powerful God, I have received answer in power and in abundance. But when I've prayed haphazardly or sporadic or lazily, I haven't seen the same effect or the same response from God to my prayer. Desperate men pray desperate prayers. And I believe that when we are serious about whether it be the deliverance that we need or the issue that we're bringing before the Lord or the freedom that we want or the salvation of our kids or our spouse or whatever it is, that when we get serious in our request to God, God gets serious in his answer to us. It's the first step in seeing things happen. They cried out to the Lord. There was no more casualness in their prayer, but there was a desperation, and God responded to it. That was the action, and here was the solution. God raises up this man, Othniel. And it doesn't tell us much about him at all. It tells us that he was the nephew of Caleb, who we know was a hero of Israel in his generation, a generation ago. But it tells us about Caleb that the spirit of the living God came upon him. That's the gadget of God employed by this man, Othniel. That led to his own deliverance and the deliverance of Israel. And it's the same thing that God wants to give to you and me today. That the Spirit of the living God would come upon us. In the New Testament, Jesus said that there are three relationships that a believer can have with the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus said that the Spirit dwells with you. And when the Spirit dwells with a person, He's an external lamp or a light, a source, a guide. It says that He'll lead you into all truth. The second experience, Jesus said, He shall be in you. And the Holy Spirit, when we give our lives to Christ, He comes inside of us. He stands at the door and knocks. And the Spirit of the living Christ comes and lives inside. And He gives us the mind of Christ. He opens up the Word of God to us. He gives us the comfort and the peace of God and the joy of the Lord. And all of the fruit of the Spirit begins to birth in our lives as the Spirit indwells us, lives inside of us. But the third one that Jesus spoke of just prior to His ascension He said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he said that you will receive power after that the Holy Ghost comes upon you. And then you shall be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it's that third relationship that's illustrated here in the life of Othniel. It says that the Spirit came upon him. And it empowered him them to stand up against the enemies of God, to make a stand for what was right, and then to be an agent of deliverance, a hero for the people when the power of God came upon him. See, the indwelling is for us. The with is for us, but the upon is for others. That God would anoint us, use us, equip us to be fruitful in the lives of other people. We are pneumatic tools. Did you know that? Do you know what a pneumatic tool is? I had to do a brake job on my minivan this past weekend. Minivans go through brakes quite quickly, you know, especially when they're full. So to take the tire off, we've all been there, whether it's in someone else's garage or your own, you grab the pneumatic air gun and you put the right socket on, you plug it into the compressor, and then you go, boof, 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 and the tire boof, and it just comes off. And you're like, yes, yeah. You know, and you're just kind of like, you know, you're like, no one's looking. So you're, you know, you're like, this is awesome. You know, the, or pneumatic nail guns. You know, I use those all the time at my house. And, and again, when no one's looking, you know, you're up on the ladder, you're shooting some things in. You see a deer walking through the backyard. And you go, you pull a little safety bag. And you know, and, and it doesn't hit. You know, you can't hit them. It's the male thing. We gotta try. You know, you, you get the arc right, and, and and if you hit them, it hits the side. You know, I'm speaking from experience. You know, one time I actually was doing with a staple gun, and I put a staple through my thumb. I was a little too close to the safety. That was actually the last time I did that. But see, there's something about the pneumatic tool that it, it's just a feeling of power. You know. I mean, what does it take the human hand to drive in a nail with a hammer? It takes a little bit of force and a little bit of effort, you know. But with the gun, you... What does it take to remove a lug nut by human force? You're jumping on the thing. You're trying to break the thing free and and, and get it loose, you know. But not with the pneumatic gun. Now, see, you and I, we are pneumatically powered. The only place there's power in our lives to do any real good is when we're plugged into, and I hate to use that word because the spirit is not a force. And he's not an energy, and he's not a compressor. He's a person. But he's an infinitely powerful person. And when we are anointed and empowered by his spirit, we can do supernatural things. Now, if I were to try to use the pneumatic lug nut air gun without the air hose, and and so I'm going to blow into it. I'm going to put my mouth on the nozzle and pull the trigger. I would probably pass out and i know i wouldn't get the thing loose because i just don't have the kind of force that it takes to power that thing you see and the same thing's true in our lives it isn't until the spirit comes upon us that we experience the power of god that we need first of all to get deliverance in our own lives but then to be of any use for someone else as we would have god use us to be heroes in a sense for them and so we need this power in our lives and the good news is that it's available to us the Bible says that the promise is for you and your children, as many as are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The necessity of being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so the solution to this problem, the solution for you and I illustrated through the life of Othniel is the power of the Spirit upon our life. But then in verse 12 we get the second sin cycle deliverance uh, testimony to us here. It says, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, and they went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palm, that's Gilgal, which had been the place of victory where they had encamped in the days of Joshua. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ahud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man, and by him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. And so here's the picture that's developed for us: is that the people of God again turn away from God. And God strengthens this Eglon enemy there, uh, you know, before them, who is the king of Moab, and he takes with him his brother, Ammon, and then their friend, Amalek, which all of them are the sworn enemies of Israel. And he actually moves into the land, and he sets up a throne in Gilgal, the heart of victory. And it says that Ehud, this man, was employed in the business of bringing tribute to Eglon. Now, you might want to circle that word tribute there that's used in verse 15 right there at the end because what that word means literally is the devoted things. And that means that the things that were supposed to be devoted to God were actually being given to this wicked king who had usurped authority in the place of victory. And there's an incredible picture that's being developed for us here. Because if you look at Israel as the Christian. The person who's governed by God. You see Israel turning away and a usurper is moving into the heart of victory and the things that are supposed to be given to God instead are being given to this enemy, this wicked king. And it's an incredible picture of what sin does in our lives when we let it in. And so here's what happened. It tells us first of all about this man Ehud and it tells us quite a bit about him. First of all, it tells us that he's a left-handed man. Now, in the Hebrew language, the word is exactly, and you know, sometimes I don't want you to think I'm real smart, like I speak Hebrew. I don't. I scan through a text in, in the thing and click on, it's a computer program. It's so easy. Anyone could do it and just check definitions to make sure there's nothing in it that's like, this is like so good. I've got to bring this out. And this one is. Because left-handed man, the Hebrew word is literally right-hand impeded. And, 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 and that actually means a lot more than that he's just left-handed. To be right-hand impeded means that he didn't have proper use of his right hand. He had an infirmity. He couldn't really use his right hand. And, and so, here's this man who is seemingly weak in and of himself... He's of really no great use to the people of God, and he's not feared by this enemy king. He's kind of a left-handed man. He he can barely use it. We're going to find out that he has to bring people with him to bring this tribute to Eglon, because he can't carry it by himself anyways. And so he really seems to be like he's not much of a threat. He's got great vulnerabilities. But it tells us there in verse 16, it says, But now Ehud made himself a dagger, and it was double-edged, in a cubit in length, that's about 18 inches. And he fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man, the Bible says. Now, when the name in the Hebrew, okay, a lot of times you know how the Hebrew or the Greek names give us a clue as to what is really going on in the person's life. You know, that happens a lot. But when it happens in English that the name actually implies what the man was, then you really know that, oh my goodness, th- this is extreme here. and We're going to find out that he really was a very fat man. And it says that when he had finished presenting the tribute... He sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the stone images. Circle that sentence, it's so important. He turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal, and he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, keep silence. All who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then Ahud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh. By the way, that's how he got around the TSA. Because, you know, literally the metal detector of the day is that they would come and they would pat down your left thigh. Most people were right-handed and you would always carry your dagger across your body so that you could grab it quickly if you have to grab from the same side it's really awkward but across your body you're right there ready so they would pat the left thigh to make sure that they weren't armed and so he now takes his left hand to right thigh grabs the dagger and he thrust it into his belly now if you're sensitive to just I'm warning you plug your ears now It says, even the hilt went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly and his entrails came out. Again, I really, I'm a King James guy in my heart. Like I'm doing this for you, but I'm a King James guy in my heart. The King James shines here. It says the dirt came out. It doesn't say entrail. The entrail speaks of the intestines, you know, but in King James it says the dirt. It says, the the blade uh, the dagger um, was swallowed, the dirt came out. It says, then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. Circle those two phrases. Shut the doors, and the phrase, and locked them. And it says, and when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked, and they said, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber, meaning he's in the bathroom. And so they waited till they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and there was their master, fallen dead on the floor. But Ahud had escaped while they delayed, and passed beyond the stone images. Circle that phrase, and passed beyond the stone images, and he escaped to Seirah. So, what's going on here in this passage? We see this man with an infirmity. He made a double-edged sword. He fastened it to his right thigh. He turned back, turned his back on the idols. He tells the king he has a message from God. He thrusts the blade in. The dirt comes out. He closes the doors, and then he passes beyond the stone images. What in the world is God speaking to us through this passage? Inside the heart of every child of God... There are two living entities. You are born into this world, and you're born with this man inside called the flesh. The Bible calls him the old man. Sometimes it calls him Adam, after Adam the first, you know, that we are all descendants of. But it's our old nature, our old ways, the way we are apart from Christ. When you are born again by the Spirit of God, the Bible says that Jesus comes and He lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit lives inside and then this battle begins. This mature and strong flesh is called to be crucified and serve the Spirit, and the throne of your heart is to be occupied by the Spirit of God. But when we let the flesh rule in our hearts and not the Spirit of God, we have given Him a back seat, and the Spirit takes that back seat. We allow the flesh to rule, the Spirit Comes aside Now, Eglon here is a picture of the flesh. The Bible says that he's a very fat man. In fact, historians, uh, we have a picture of Eglon um, that's been recorded. And, and I, got, I have that for you so you can actually see what he looks like to get an idea of what we're dealing here with this man Eglon. Is the picture available of Eglon? There he is. He, he's not a kind of guy you want to mess with. Now, here's the best part. Leave it up there. He lives in you. Do you know that? That that he lives in you and he lives in me. That's the flesh. And here's the problem with the flesh, is that the flesh is very fat and the flesh never loses weight. He only gets fatter and fatter and fatter and he has the ability to just expand forever. He never slows down. As much as he is fed, he assimilates and he grows and he becomes overpowering. And when a believer yields to the flesh and lets the flesh reign, the flesh just grows, the flesh dominates, and the spirit waits in the background and takes a back seat because he's gentle and he never usurps authority in the life. Now we have this man, Ehud. And Ehud is a man with an infirmity. He's not greatly esteemed, he's not feared by the enemy, but his infirmity turns out to be his strength. Just like the Bible says that we're made strong in our weakness, and it tells us that He made for Himself a two-edged sword. Now, poetically, scripturally, the two-edged sword always speaks of the Word of God. It's poetically symbolic of the words of God or the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, the word of God, the sword of the spirit. Ephesians 6, 17, Paul, when he talks about the armor of God, the only offensive weapon, he says, "And taking the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. When Jesus returns in the book of Revelation, chapter, uh, what is it, twenty? or 19 verse 21 when jesus returns it says that on his thigh he's got a name written which is you know the king of kings and the lord of lords and it says that out of his mouth went a two-edged sword through which he devoured his enemies and so in the bible the, the sword is always symbolic and especially the two-edged sword of the word of god and so here's what he does he takes the sword And first of all, he turns his back upon the idols, and then he thrusts the sword into the heart of the problem. He puts the sword into the flesh. He inserts it into the the usurped throne room, the place where evil has taken over that it's not supposed to be. He puts it in there, and, and notice that he puts all of it in. Not just the blade, you know, the New Testament, the sharp part. But the haft of the blade, too, the handle, the whole thing gets swallowed up in there. And notice the result of it. It says that the dirt came out. That's the solution when the flesh has dominated your life. You put the word of God in, and the dirt will come out. That's the solution. That's how you get by in this thing. So he does that, and then it says that he closes the door to that problem. It says he closes the door, he locks it behind him, and it's a done deal. It's settled. That's done. I'm done with that. Eglon is through. And then it says from there that he passed by the stone images. In other words, he got past his problem. See, the problem was they had set up images in the place of victory. And he said, I'm done with it. I've put the... Sword of the Spirit in, the dirt has come out, that problem is dead, I've locked the doors, I've gotten by. So how do we get beyond our problem? You put the Word in. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29, the prophet says this. He says, Is not my word, speaking for the Lord, like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. There's nothing too hard for the word of God. His word is strong and powerful and able to break even the hardest things within our heart. Psalm 119 verse 9. It says, How shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word? Isaiah chapter 55 verses uh, 10 and 11. It says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void but it shall accomplish what I please and it will prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The most powerful thing that you and I possess is the word of God. Not alone. It's when we're filled with the Spirit and it's mixed with faith. But when you have those things, the Word of God is the most powerful, incredible thing that you could ever have. Because everything God said is going to come to pass. The Bible says that He cannot lie. He's immutable. And so we have the Word of God. He gives it to us. And, 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 and we see it pictured here in this thing. One of the greatest things... Uh, about the Word of God is that it has power to keep us from sin. Somebody said one time, and, and, and you'll remember this forever and prove it to be true, is that this book will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from this book. And there's truth in that. You know, one of the greatest things I'm thankful for in my own life is that when I got saved, God landed me in a Bible-teaching church, and, he, and my foundation with Him was centered upon the Word of God. And I don't know where I would be in my Christian faith today if it hadn't been for that. But the Word of God is so paramount to our uh, spiritual experience. What's the result of this thing? Uh, There, if you look in verse 27, it says, "And, And it happened that when he arrived, so now Ehud comes back from Gilgal to where the people are, it says that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. And he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. And we'll pause right there in our study because verse 31 we get a whole new judge and a whole new uh, set of circumstances and how this is but what we've seen tonight in our study essentially is we've seen the first two hero making helps if you would things that god has made available to us that we might be victorious in our christian experience one is the power of the holy spirit upon our lives Number two is the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit that's able to keep us from evil. How many um, have ever seen the original Superman, the one with Christopher Reeves? Anybody not seen that? Like, you have no idea what I'm talking about, Superman with Christopher Reeves, you know. But you know who Superman is, right? Okay? There's a scene in, in that movie when, when, when you know Clark Kent basically comes of age and, and he you know has to go to the North Pole and he goes there and it's at that place that he kind of discovers who he is. He know he he knows he has all these powers that he can do all these things, but he doesn't have any purpose behind him. Why am I here? What what's the purpose of all this thing? What, what did God? Or what what did you know? What is this? Why am I here? And he goes there, and there he meets his father. It's a great illustration. You know. And his father explains to him why he's there and what those powers are for. And he kind of, you know, he leaves there a different man because he has a purpose. Now I know what these things are about. And in some sense, you could look at these judges in your own life, and you can almost hear the voice of your father saying, look, these are the things that I want to do in your life. To equip you with and employ you to go forth and to make a difference in the lives of other people. But you can't make a difference for someone else until you yourself have been delivered. So may God grant to us the ability to receive what he has for us, to take it and use it for his glory. Amen? Father, we just thank you tonight for uh, these incredible stories, Lord. They're so pregnant with meaning. And you teach us so much through them. And we just pray, Father, that you would Speak to us and make application in a personal way now. Lord, some of us, we have situations where we look and we say, we are servants to double wickedness. Or we look at our lives and we say, our flesh has risen so much over us that it's unpenetrable. We can't get past this enemy, this carnal behavior. But Lord, tonight I pray that by the power of your Spirit and the power of your Word, you would help us to rise above those things. And that we might experience deliverance through your name and through what you've given. So teach us, Lord. Help us. And send us. That it might not just be for us, but it might be for others as well. So we give thanks to you, Lord. Pray your will be done in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.